Welcome into Meet Me the Movies. I am Thomas Manning. I'm hosting today. We are audio only once again as Noel Manning could not make it back to studio. He uh, ended up struggling a little bit more with the kidney stone issue. Uh, still have a bit of a rocky time. However, uh, we're happy to say that he is back home now and he is resting up, healing up. We should be back in studio in person on camera next week. Uh, but for today, once again, I am joined by Christian Jessup. Uh, former former co-host of Meet Me in the Movies, and we're always delighted to have him join us here. And uh, we're going to be getting into some a uh, little bit all over the place with today's show. We'll be discussing No Time to Die, James Bond. We're also going to be discussing The Last Duel, the Ridley Scott film, perhaps some Ted Lasso season two, maybe a little bit more. Uh, but I know that we're all eager to talk about No Time to Die. This is a film that had I think it was really one of the first COVID delays. Um, originally slated for like April of 2020, and that was one of the first ones we heard. Okay, we're pushing it back, and that was like the first domino that fell and kept getting pushed back and kept getting pushed back. And here we are in October of 2021, a year and a half after its original release date, and uh, it's finally here. And uh, I know Christian in particular is very excited to be speaking about Hans Zimmer's uh, contributions to the project as uh, as composer. Uh, but first off, Christian, I'll just um, I'll give you an opportunity to get into some of your general thoughts with No Time to Die. Yeah, like you said, we there was a long delay for this movie. Um, I had a friend, Zane, who started a countdown back in like March of 2020, thinking that it was going to be like a 20 or 30 day countdown on Twitter where he'd tweet about the film. And he kept it going for 600 days as the movie got delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed. Um, but you know, here we are. It's finally out. Um, probably better that they did push it back a little bit. The plot of the film revolves a little bit around um, injections and, and viral diseases. So um, might not have sat very well at the start of COVID, um, but it's finally been released and I'd say it was well worth the wait. Um, it felt like a throwback to classic Bond in a lot of ways to me. Um, had a very like classic score. There were, you know, the fun gadgets that Bond fans are always going to remember and love, the cool cars, the classic gunfights. Um, but in a weird way, it also didn't feel like a Bond film at all. Um, I think the entire time Craig, Daniel Craig, has been a part of this franchise, he's done a good job of humanizing the Bond character. Um, he's not just a cool spy. You kind of see him as a person. You see his personal life. And I think No Time to Die really capped that off well. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, it, you aren't viewing him as a secret agent. You're just really invested in this guy trying to, to go around and save the world one more time. Um, I think this is Daniel Craig's best performance as James Bond. You can really tell he's giving it his all. Um, the supporting cast, um, Anna de Armas, Jeffrey Wright, you've got some incredible performances in here as well. Um, I did think the villain of this one, Rami Malek, um, I was not as impressed with the crafting of his character or Malek's performance. Um, I think it fell into a little bit of the generic bad guy 
problem just wasn't properly developed um, and Malik kind of just relied on the the creepy voice to to carry the performance um, not to say he did a bad job there but just not one of the stronger Bond villains in my opinion um, but at the end of the day Kerry Fukunaga did an incredible job as the director here um, you know we all know that he's a wonderful director but it's interesting to see him with this you know huge budget huge franchise he really makes the most of it um, the action direction is crisp and clear. Um, his shot selections were great. And the editing of those shots were really good. I loved the way that he would like pan the camera and then switch the shots. And you've kind of got a reverse pan going the opposite direction. Um, just little things like that, that you kind of take for granted in films, but it was so nice to see in a blockbuster film. Um, and I haven't even mentioned Hans Zimmer yet. Um, I can talk a little more in depth about him later, but his music was absolutely wonderful, did a really great job with Bond. Um, so I absolutely adored the film. I got emotional watching it um, and I gave it an A. What about you, Thomas? What are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, so you mentioned uh, the just emotional resonance there. Um, so I'm someone who's a very casual fan of James Bond. Um, I'm going to be honest, I've only seen maybe three or four Bond films outside of the Craig era. Uh, I think I've seen a few from Brosman, a few from uh, Connery, but outside of that, um, it's just something that I always knew about, always thought was cool and knew was a huge staple in pop culture, but there were just so many of them. It was kind of overwhelming. I didn't know where to start and like how many to go back and watch. Um, so it's one of those I just never really got into um, from like a huge fanaticism perspective. Um, I, and even with the Craig films, I, I love the Craig films, but Skyfall was one of my favorite films of that year. Um, Casino Royale is just, I think, one of the greatest action films of the past 20 years. But coming into this, uh, I didn't have a huge emotional connection to it. I was just thinking, all right, uh, it's, it's Bond. It's, it's going to bring in folks to the theater just based on that name alone. And uh, it's the end of Craig's era. Um, I think Craig has done a fantastic job embodying that character and just giving us kind of a different look had the Bond character, um, a more modern look. Um, but I didn't have just major high expectations. I was just kind of along for the ride, along for whatever, whatever they want to throw at me. Um, and yeah, so like, as far as the story, it's a pretty familiar story, uh, international secret terrorist organization. They're about to unleash basically a terrible plague on the whole world. And uh, only one man is standing between them, Bond, James Bond. Um, then, you know, he's, of course, he's got a, he has to get by with a little help from his friends. Um, but all of that, it's stuff we've seen time and time again. But when I was watching it, I literally could not have cared less just because the filmmaking was so superb. And it's not filmmaking that we see in blockbusters anymore. Um, you know, I love the Marvel movies um, and I love superhero flicks, but there is a very tangible difference you can see between watching those and watching these just with um in in no time to die the on location shooting is very apparent um the just the lighting the framing the camera movement is so much more dynamic than anything we see in other blockbusters and the sound design is just just really pulsing and you, you feel it like in your gut and um just the high stakes and emotional drama like there are very very real and authentic stakes um life or death people People are not safe. I mean, when people die in this universe, they're not going to be brought back from the dead with an infinity stone or something. They're good. They're gone for good. And um, just all of that um, kind of rolled up. It 
it really um, it will really resonate with you, even if you don't have a major connection to the character. Um, and I, um, I could not have been more pleased with what we got from No Time to Die. Um, and obviously, um, I'm not spoiling anything, but there's, there's a little at the end of the credits says James Bond will return. We know somebody is going to come back to this character at some point. He might be recast um, in five or 10 years, uh, completely um, change, give him a whole nother different look. Um, just like Craig was a different shift from, I think Brosnan was right before him. So Craig was definitely a shift from Brosnan. Where we get next, it'll be interesting to see if they kind of keep with this tone or if they take it in a whole new direction. But either way, I'm uh, looking forward to it. But um, I'm always going to remember and appreciate the time that we got with Daniel Craig's James Bond. And, um, you know, like you mentioned, major credit to uh, Kerry Fukunaga on his uh, directorial duties on this. Um, solid A for me for... James Bond, No Time to Die, the 25th Bond film, and uh, really glad finally got to see it. And I uh, know no, Zane Gray uh, was very glad he finally got to see it after all this time as well. So, uh, yeah, but uh, Christian, I, I think you mentioned Hans Zimmer. Uh, I'll let you dive back into that and just, um, you know, you know, get get as deep into it as you want to. I know uh, you could probably talk for an hour about it, probably try to cut down a little bit on that. But, uh, you know, j I'm just going to let you lose here. Yeah, I won't go too too far in the weeds with the the nerdy music talk here, but I really loved what Hans Zimmer did with the with the score. You know, James Bond has an iconic uh, theme song that he's had from the start, and it's you know made it into every Bond film in some way, shape, or form. But what I really liked about Zimmer's score is he really dissected the theme. He like tore it apart and like took each individual element of the bond theme and worked it into the score i i would venture to say that there's not a single cue of music in the film that doesn't have some element of the james bond theme in it um which is just really incredible to hear it when it when it's happening um the classic bond chord progression um are these half notes that rise 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 and then fall and then that just repeats over and over um and so zimmer will play that really slowly during slow scenes he'll do it fast during faster scenes um, you've got that guitar riff that's classic. He plays that in the guitar. There's a few like throwback cues where it's just like the classic James Bond theme, but he also works it into the brass in some sections. He changes the rhythm up of it. Um, so it's really fascinating to, to hear. I don't know what production budget we've got on this to, to be able to play some in the background while I talk, but um, highly encourage everybody to listen to the soundtrack um, and to hear it for yourself and see if you can pick out some of those those places where he where he really broke down the Bond theme and then worked it back into the score. So uh, would you say it's your favorite Bond score? I think I would. Um, I'm a little biased. I, I interned with Hans Zimmer a few years ago, so anything he releases, I tend to to really enjoy. But um, I think it just hit me in a way that most Bond scores haven't. Um, it also probably helps that this might be my favorite Bond film, or at least top two. Um, so I think that the music plays a big part in that, the action cues, um, some emotional scenes in there too. But yeah, I think all in all, if you had to ask me right now, this is my favorite Bond score. And uh, Zimmer also has uh, work on another film this month, uh, Dune. Is, I think he was really, really busy working on Dune and No Time to Die, probably around the same time scoring those. Um, and uh, is that correct, Christian? Are you going <laughs> to? Yeah, that no, understanding? that's absolutely correct. Um, yeah. Kind of funny seeing all these films come out because um, 
like you said, he was working on all of those a lot last year. Um, he was also working on Wonder Woman 84 around the same time last year. So it's funny to see how spread out those films released when they were all supposed to release like one after another. Um, but yeah, he's got Dune coming out soon. That soundtrack's already been released and it's got some really experimental stuff in it. Um, James Bond is a classic orchestral score. Dune is anything but. He's got female chanting. He's got like breathy sounds that he recorded and played in reverse um might not be the best song to like turn on in the car and sing along to but um it's definitely got some unique experimental qualities and i'm excited to to hear it along with the actual dune film well uh after spending some time here talking about hans zimmer we are going to shift gears a little bit and talk about a director that hans zimmer has worked with in the past uh i think notably on gladiator um and this is Ridley Scott's newest film that we're talking about, The Last Duel. So um, I will say this film is not the most enjoyable. It's not something that I can say that I had a great time watching it just because it deals with such heavy and dark themes. Um, it's, you know, sexual assault is one of the main plot points in the film. And that's, uh, that's just anytime you deal with that, it's very sensitive material. And um, it's, I think, audiences should know that going into this. No what they're about to watch um but just the filmmaking here that's on display from Ridley Scott someone who is what, 80 years old now um it's it's just truly astounding um you know somebody gave me a hard time on Twitter last week when I you know tweeted my reaction about the movie coming out of the screening and they were like you just got to stop talking about how old this guy is but I'm like no that's a compliment like I hope that I'm that passionate about something when I, when I'm 80 years old I hope that I have that much energy to continue making meaningful art like this so i meant that as like just the you know, highest praise to ridley scott um not only does he have this film but he also has uh, house of gucci later this year um two heavy awards contenders um so ridley scott is a legend uh, sir ridley scott that is i believe he is officially a knight um and yeah, this film does deal with uh knights in a more medieval sense um so the way the narrative structure is established it uses the i don't know if you're familiar with the rashomon effect which is a storytelling device going back to akira kurosawa had a film called a rashomon and actually this past summer i spent some time uh diving deep into the filmography of akira kurosawa and rashomon was one of the first ones i watched and um once you kind of understand the history of how that um how that storytelling device is used uh, you can pinpoint it in so many other films over the past 70 years so that's where um within a film or within any story you have a flashback uh from multiple perspectives um you know looking at the same event but from multiple perspectives of people who were involved in that event somehow um so that's that's the way that um uh, the last duel uses that and it's um split into three chapters um and the perspectives on, on each chapter switch um, not just philosophically, but also like physically, um, the way things are blocked and framed. Um, and just, I think, from an acting perspective, getting into that mindset and having to kind of switch up just very subtle emotions, very subtle expressions like that is um, something that is extremely difficult to do. And I have to give a lot of praise to the actors there. Um, and, you know, the cast is absolutely stacked from top to bottom. Uh, Jodie Comer 
Uh, it's a very kind of subtle under the surface performance, but it's just extremely strong. There's just like so much quiet strength about her uh, screen presence here. Um, and we saw her a few months ago in Free Guy with Ryan Reynolds. Um, that film could not have been any more different. Like compared to this, these, these are on two polar opposite extremes. And um, she's incredible in both roles. Uh, she actually nails both of them really without breaking a sweat. Um, and I, you know, if you, if you told someone, you know, who was just a casual film fan, you know, this is Jodie Comer in this film, and here she is in this film. I mean, they might not have even realized it was the same person just because it is that unbelievably um, on the other end of the spectrum. So I got to give major props to her. Uh, I think she is she has a decent shot at making some noise in awards season this year. Um, and uh, then also the cast itself is really, uh, there's a very heavy male presence. Uh, but it's kind of a female-centric story just about her character because she is certainly the protagonist of the story is um, for the, I think she was the one who we are, who we feel the most empathy for. Um, but then some of the other characters around her, um, Adam Driver is there. Uh, he is such a vile, despicable character in this film. Um, he does a really good job making me hate him. Um, and it was weird. Um, he's, he's one of my favorite actors. Um, but he did such a great job making me hate him that when I tweeted my initial reaction to the film, I didn't even mention him because I just like didn't even want to be didn't even want to be thinking about him at that point because he had just like his um, just his grotesqueness of that character um, was just completely turned me off. But that just you know means he was doing his job as an actor. And uh, so major props to Adam Driver again. Uh, ben Affleck is also in this film. He's got this blonde hair uh it's dyed in a really weird blonde way that we haven't seen with ben affleck before um and he's he's oddly hilarious in this film um he's someone who's he's got he's, he's got a lot of power and he knows it um and he just kind of throws his weight around everywhere and um but he kind of has this almost carefree um cocky energy about him which is <laughs> It's just his, uh, the way he gets into that role is uh, something that he doesn't have a ton of screen time, but every time he is on screen, you are fully invested in all of his, all of his um, expressions, even just his more, um, even the more micro elements of his performance are something that really stick out. Um, Matt Damon, of course, um, I would say he probably has close to the most screen time, but strangely enough, I find myself thinking back to his performance the least out of any of his cast um he was really good but just everything else was even better and um i feel like he was somewhat overshadowed but that's it's not a bad thing it's not a knock on his performance and it's not a knock on the film as a whole it's just something that um it's just something i had in my notes that i was thinking back like huh you know matt damon was in this he was good but um everybody else was just that much better um i have to ask thomas um there's some people for me where it's like i look at them in a trailer and i either think like yeah i can really see you fitting in a me medieval setting or it's like no you're 100 from 2021 um and when i watched the trailer matt damon and even a little bit ben affleck struck me as like i just don't believe you're a person from the medieval times did that bother you during the film or is that something that really isn't a factor in it i would say Adam Driver in particular, in particular, he completely fits that medieval, oh, excuse me, medieval Absolutely. setting. Every, Absolutely. He does, like, 
without a question. But um, yeah, Damon and Affleck, they can't really hold a candle to Driver as far as uh, blending into the scenery like that. Um, yeah, and Affleck, I mentioned he he's somebody that you were watching the whole time that he kept your attention, but it's almost because he did feel out of place. Um, he fell out of place, but I thought that was to the benefit of his performance. Um, but with Damon, he kind of fell out of place and just, um, hate to say forgettable, but just kind of, um, you know, not not the most noteworthy. Um, so that that's kind of how that played together. And, um, yeah, it's just uh, thinking back to the way the, the cast as a whole worked from top to bottom. But, um, yeah, when, when you have Adam Driver in a medieval setting, it's hard to stack up against that. So, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, as far as the filmmaking um, from technical perspective, there are about like three or four action set pieces that are pretty big, but um, they're, they're really short in length and don't take up a lot of the runtime. Most of the runtime is just pure character drama, pure social drama. Um, and I think that was to its benefit. Uh, you do feel the length is two and a half hours long, but it's one of those stories that it needed to be paced like this. Um, you know, it needed to um, sit with the audience so that they can reflect on it and really formulate in their minds what's happening on screen. Um, so I think the two and a half hour runtime was beneficial. Um, you know, the visuals, uh, there's a very grayish bluish palette and it's pretty much consistent throughout the entire runtime. Um, it doesn't really change. But considering the, the material of the story, it's so bleak and dreary. Uh, I think that was a very conscious, atmospheric narrative device. Um, so it's, it's like really any shot from the film you could probably frame and um, put in a museum somewhere. But it's not like, not because of the colors, not because it's so bright and sunny and beautiful. It's just because um, it's the way the focus is, the way the lighting is, is... Um, and just the way it creates a certain tone and a certain mood with the audience and with the characters in the film. Um, but yeah, overall, Last Duel, uh, you know, just as a film, I'm going to give it a solid A minus. Uh, but once again, a warning to audiences out there that it is not uh, fun escapist entertainment. And it, uh, you know, might have some might have some triggering moments for certain audiences. So uh, just just be careful and uh, understand what you're getting into before you go check it out. But I would, if you're, if you're a fan of filmmaking and you uh, think you can think that you can, um, you know, get in, get with it, then I'd say go for the last duel. You have any thoughts, Christian? I know you're looking forward to checking it out soon. I'm definitely looking forward to it. I am so upset. I had a screening invite for yesterday and I just was not able to make it. Um, so I can't contribute too much to the conversation, but I'll definitely be there this weekend, and I know you're you're catching some some slack for mentioning Ridley's age, but I am just thoroughly impressed with these older filmmakers that are just absolutely knocking it out of the park. We've got Ridley Scott making two films this year. Um, you know, we just had Clint Eastwood act and direct in a film, and he's coming up on ninety, right? He's not ninety-one years old. Ninety-one yeah. years old. Um, you've got people like John Williams that's still writing music for Indiana Jones Five. Um, and he's 89, I believe. I mean, it is just remarkable. Um, and li like you said, I'm going to be thrilled if I reach that age and I'm still being as productive as these people are. Yeah, and uh, I think I took up a lot of time there talking about The Last Duel, but I uh, had a lot to say about it. But I think we will uh, transition into a much um, 
Now, what's a lighter topic uh, talking about Ted Lasso, uh, the second season in particular of Ted Lasso, but um, as we saw, this really evolved from, um, I felt like first season was just kind of chicken noodle soup for the soul. Uh, this one, um, it still has a lot of that. It still has that at the core of it, but transitions into some pretty heavy character drama and uh, it gets pretty dark in some instances. So, um, you know, Kristen, you were the one who introduced me to Ted Lasso in the first place. And I know we were very excited to and keeping up week by week with season two. So I'll have you talk a little bit about um, your your memories with season two. Yeah. So, you know, during promotion of season two, a lot of the cast was comparing Ted Lasso season two um, and season one to Star Wars, A New Hope and The Empire Strikes Back. Um, and I, I think now that I've seen the full season, that was a very apt comparison, because if you look at the original Star Wars film and compare it to Empire Strikes Back, the original Star Wars was very self-contained. Um, it's a little bit of a more lighthearted, fun adventure. Like you were saying, you know, Ted Lasso season one is a lighthearted chicken noodle soup for the soul. Um, and season two, you know, it's by no means a dark drama, but it really ups the stakes. It ups the, the character drama. Um, and it really has some emotional moments that, that hit me hard and made me sad in ways I wasn't expecting. Um, you know, if you've watched this season one, um, you're familiar with, you know, Ted Lasso, this coach coming over from America um, to, to teach a soccer team in England. And, you know, this season really picks up where season one left off. Um, he's really gotten the team united. He's gotten the owner united, um, management united. Um, and it kind of is just digging into how the team reacts um, and how the people around him react now that they've kind of bought into his philosophy. But as we see throughout the season, not necessarily everyone has bought into his philosophy. Um, some people are holding grudges. Some people are going through dry spells. Um, and, you know, the thing that hit me the most about season two and how it differs is that season true was truly an ensemble um season you know in season one Jason Sudeikis as Tad, Ted Lasso is very clearly the main character of the show and I'm not sure that that's quite as true in season two um there's a very even distribution of screen time between Ted um Coach Beard Nate plays a huge role um Roy Kent Jamie Tart I mean literally there's so many people um not to mention Rebecca the team's owner um, so there's so many people this season's focused on. Um, I'm rambling at this point because I do adore the show. Um, I will say, I think I appreciate the tightness and self-containedness of season one just a little bit more, but season two maintained all the great humor, um, still a very warm, lighthearted show for the most part, and it really upped the stakes as well. So I was really satisfied when we reached the end of season two, and it just makes me all the more excited to, to see where season three lands. Yeah, I think they found out pretty late in um, either pre-production of season two or maybe during production that they had time and resources for two more episodes than they originally thought. Um, so those two episodes that you see, you can kind of notice which ones they are. Uh, they are the Christmas episode, which is like episode four in the season. And then there's an episode completely dedicated to Coach Beard. Uh, I think it's like episode nine possibly in the uh, second season. And Ted Lasso, um, Jason Sudeikis, he's not in that episode until the final five minutes. And so 
Um, I, you know, I appreciated that they were willing to just get that bizarre with it and uh, just try stuff out. But it was pretty noticeable. You could tell um, that this was something that kind of, this was an opportunity that kind of fell in their laps and they took advantage of it. And it didn't quite um, make for the most cohesive season compared to, you know, season one, which was just like one of the tightest, uh, one of the tightest seasons of TVs, excuse me, one of the tightest seasons of television I've ever seen. And yeah. um, season two, you could, had the meandering here and then, um, but just as a package, um, it hit every single emotional beat and built on all the emotion of season one in unexpected and, you know, uh, complex and sometimes kind of perplexing ways um, and certain emotional beats that you're, you, I'm still trying to kind of pinpoint in my mind how exactly they got from point A to point B here. Um, and they made it work and uh, just have so much respect for, everybody who works on the show, um, you know, and it's not just the writing, but, um, you know, technically there's um, a lot of great filmmaking or, you know, it's television, but it's still filmmaking. Um, like the uh, big scenes for the big games. Um, when you look at the stands, um, I, so I had early access to some screeners and the visual effects weren't even finished. And it was just wild uh, seeing, all the, the crowd noise pumped in, but there was nobody, the crowd hadn't been animated yet. And you saw some green screens and it's like, when you see that compared to the final product, it gives you so much more respect for the VFX artists because you don't even think about uh, VFX people having a huge job in something like Ted Lasso. But then when I got to that point, uh, it just really opened my eyes to that. And uh, so have to mention that as something that um, I got just have a you know newfound respect for and um christian do you have any more thoughts about ted lasso no absolutely um and i think lastly i'll just mention in a lot of the interviews they've talked about how they started the show with kind of a three season arc in mind and i really appreciate that and i think you can see that coming to fruition now at the end of season two um you know some shows are able to plan really far ahead some shows aren't um, doesn't mean one strategy is better than the other, but I think seeing how season one laid the groundwork for a lot of the things that happened in season two, you can really appreciate that they have this plan in mind and that they've been able to to put the pieces in each step of the way to make that plan happen for these character arcs. Yeah, but most definitely I am um, very anxiously awaiting a third season and to see if that's it. If, if that is it, I'll be satisfied with it. If they build on from there, then I'll be happy. I'll never turn down more Ted Lasso, but uh, yeah, I'll give a, a solid A for Ted Lasso season two as well. Uh, Christian, what's your letter grade for it? Gave it a B plus. Really solid though. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, let's see. We've, we've discussed some James Bond action. Uh, we've talked about uh, the last duel, Ridley Scott, and we talked about Ted Lasso, which all have some British elements to them in one fashion or another. Uh, and I think we'll, we'll close out. Christian, I'll give you an opportunity, if you'd like to, to talk about a new Netflix film, The Guilty, uh, starring Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh, I don't think there's anything connected to Great Britain in this particular film. Uh, we, this might be a bit of a uh, thematic um, you know, thematic left turn here, uh, or geographic left turn, but, uh, you know, Christian, I haven't seen this film, but I saw it on your letterbox and I was like, you know what, I'll, I'll let Christian talk about this because it's one I've been interested in hearing about. So, uh, yeah, give us your thoughts on the guilty. 
Yeah, so uh, unfortunately, you are correct. There are no British connections to this to this film. Um, but yeah, the the guilty starring Jake Gyllenhaal, directed by Antoine Fuqua. Hope I pronounced his name correctly. Apologies, Antoine. I'm sure you're listening. So um, if you're out there, feel free to to email us and let us know if we did not say your you name. I think you got it. I think you got okay. it. Okay. So. Well, then, Antoine, you're welcome. Glad you're out there supporting our show. Um, but the guilty is about this demoted police detective that's now a 911 operator. And he's scrambling to save this distressed caller that's saying she's been kidnapped. Um, and so that's about all I want to give away because it really is a mystery film. Um, but what's unique about the film is it's kind of a bottle episode, if you will. It is all set in one room, one area. You're literally just stuck with Jake Gyllenhaal in the 911 operator center. Um, and following him around. We never see the kidnapping. We never see any other people on the other end of the calls. It's just Jake and then a few other 911 operators. Um, funny enough about the film, Antoine Fuqua came in contact with someone who had COVID. And so he actually had to direct the film in isolation. It was an 11 day film shoot um, and they couldn't delay it. You know, they had to work with Jake's schedule, the crew's schedule. So he was actually completely offset in a van that had monitors, walkie-talkies, headsets. And so they were, they were speaking behind the scenes about the irony of filming a film about this guy that's isolated with a headset talking to others while the director, Anton Fuqua, is isolated and somewhere else talking to people on a headset. Um, but the film started really strong, and I think there was a real novelty to the fact that we're just stuck with Jake Gyllenhaal and, you know, relying a lot on the audio mixing to, to kind of sell the plot. But I think that novelty started to wear off by the end. It's a 90 minute film and it is a pretty tight 90 minutes, but towards the end, you're, you're kind of ready for it to be over just because you kind of wish there was more variety to the, to the sets and the locations there. Um, I did mention the sound mixing though, really impressed with how they were able to convey um, the, the different things that are going on over the phone when Jake's talking to different people, getting 911 calls. Um, in a way, a lot of the other actors in this film are voice actors because they're having to sell their emotions purely from us hearing their voices. We aren't seeing them on the other end of the line. Um, and they all did a wonderful job. Um, and then Jake Gyllenhaal, his performance is really what carries it through and what makes me give this film a positive score. Um, he just has such a strong screen presence. He's such a compelling actor to watch. And, you know, even though I, the novelty of the situation wore off, I think I would have watched Jake Gyllenhaal talking on a camera for like five hours before I would have turned it off um, because he really just is giving his all with this performance. And it was really great to see. Um, it's emotional. Um, you can really see the, the pain and the panic he feels trying to help this woman on the other side of the line. And I loved the work from him here, even if the story wasn't quite there for me. Um, so like I mentioned, it's a 90 minute film. I highly recommend checking it out, especially for, for Jake's great performance. But I landed on a C for, for this film, The Guilty. All right. Yeah. Um, with, even with that story you just told about the production and with Antoine directing from isolation, that might have convinced me just to watch it on that merit alone. Um, I'm very fascinated to see how that would translate. Um, and the way you describe this film reminds me of a film called Lock with Tom Hardy. I don't know if you've seen that movie or not. It was an A24 film from maybe maybe 10 years ago or so. Um, but in that film, Tom Hardy has like a 90 minute car ride and the movie's in real time 
Um, and he's talking on the phone the whole time and everything in his life is just falling apart over the course of this 90 minutes. Um, you know, his marriage is falling apart, his job. Um, I think he, he, I can't remember his, I think he worked in like, um, he worked for like a cement company and there was a whole thing with a certain big project they were working on and that was falling apart. And just, this is a man in ultimate personal crisis mode. Um, and Tom Hardy's performance uh, had to carry the film. Uh, the only other actors um, were, like like you said, voice actors. Uh, I think actually Tom Holland, a young Tom Holland, had a credit in the film as Tom Hardy's character's son on the other end of the phone line. I think Olivia Coleman was the wife on the other end of the phone line. But uh, yeah, anyway, that's that's my spiel. Uh, go check out Locke, Christian, if you have it. I'll, be uh, interested to see what you think of that one after watching The Guilty. Um, and I think, yeah, maybe I'll watch The Guilty and you can watch uh, Locke. And yeah, so, we'll swap out and yeah. return with our thoughts on the other one. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so sounds like a plan. Um, and I think we, uh, let's see, we don't have any time constraints for this episode of Meet Me the Movies, but I do think we've covered most. Oh, <laughs> hold up. Hey, Noel, come in here. Come in here, Noel. <laughs> big old fish, big old fish. I see Noel is alive and well. All right. Um, well, uh, listeners out there, you just heard a cameo appearance from Noel Manning. Uh, I guess, guess he heard our cues and uh, heard that we were missing him. So, um, you know, Noel, we're missing you, and can't wait to have you back in the studio next week. But yes, as you can hear, he's alive and well. Um, he he was shouting, "Be a goldfish," which is a Ted Lasso saying. Be a goldfish because if you make a mistake, you know what? Learn from it, but then forget about it and move on. Because goldfish has a ten-second memory, and uh, yeah. So, I think that will wrap it up for this edition of Meet Me in the Movies. But uh, Chris and Jessup, as always, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, and thank you so much for your phenomenal insights and uh, on everything from James Bond and Hans Zimmer to Ted Lasso and Goldfish and uh, Antoine's. So is it, we've been, uh, you know, been all, a little bit all over the place, but it's been a great show, I think. Just a little bit, but yeah, it's always a pleasure to, to join. Ex- excited to, to be back again this week. Yep. And uh, we'll do it again sometime, but on, uh, on that note, I think that will, I will sign it off here. Uh, you know, I was supposed to have a quote of the week. Uh, do I have a quote of the week? I don't think I do, but we'll, we'll just say. Be a goldfish. Be, be a goldfish in the words <laughs> of Ted Lasso. Thank you so much for tuning in to Meet Me in the Movies. We'll see you next time. Many films to view Until we meet again Next time we see you We'll gladly fill We'll tell about the happy and the sad ones We'll talk about the good ones and the bad ones Many films to view Till we meet again